0: This is Central Time, I'm Rob Ferret. On Saturday, the Palestinian militant group Hamas launched a surprise attack on Israel. Sources say Hamas fired over 2,500 rockets and Hamas militants entered Israel, attacking and killing civilians and taking others hostage. The attack has killed at least 1,200 people. Since the assault on Saturday, Israel has been targeting Gaza with retaliatory airstrikes, killing an estimated 1,000 Palestinians, displacing maybe 200,000 others, according to some estimates. In a press conference on Saturday, President Biden emphasized the United States' support of Israel.
1: Let me say this as clearly as I can, this is not a moment for any party hostile to Israel to exploit these attacks to seek advantage. The world is watching, and let there be no mistake, the United States stands with the state of Israel, just as we have from the moment the United States became the first nation recognized Israel 11 minutes after its founding 75 years ago
0: the news sent a major shockwave through the middle east and beyond and has been dominating headlines here in the u.s our next guest studies politics in the middle east and is here to provide some context for the latest news in the ongoing violence you can join in at 800-642-1234 do you have questions for our guest were you personally connected with this weekend's attack? Uh, do you, are you hearing things from maybe family members or friends in the region? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234, or email ideas at wpr.org. Nadav Shalif is a professor of comparative politics and international relations at UW-Madison. Nadav, thanks a lot for joining us today. My pleasure. Before we start digging into the history, Ken, uh, details are still coming out about the the enormity of this initial attack from Hamas, uh, the atrocities committed. Can you talk a little bit about uh, uh, what we know and the effect it's had on Israeli civilians?
1: Um, well, as you know, it's something that's still ongoing, and we I think continuously even more. Uh, what we know right now is basically what you started off with on Saturday morning Hamas. Uh, basically hated uh, Israel uh, and, uh, went through basically atrocities uh, in Israeli villages along the border with the strip uh, uh, and uh
0: and I'm sorry. Do we still have you enough? Your your line was coming. Yeah. Down. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. Uh, and uh, then the current situation now: Israel preparing uh, a ground invasion. It appears uh, in Gaza, uh, airstrikes already going on. What do we know about uh, the humanitarian situation facing uh, Gaza civilians at this point?
1: Uh, so I think the Gaza Strip um, no longer has uh, electric power, uh, and so all things that go along with not having electricity are so going to happen. So water could be there all, um, uh, I think, non-functional in the Gaza Strip now. I think the situation there is going to get uh, worse before it gets better.
0: Now, let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, what has led up to all this. First of all, can you talk about Hamas, who they are and who they do? And, and I guess, importantly, who they don't represent?
1: Uh, so Hamas is a, uh, Palestinian nationalist organization. They emerged in the late 1980s, uh, and what they saw as the, um, uh, secular Palestinian nationalists willingness to, uh, reach an accommodation with, uh, with Israel and to resist that accommodation. Uh, and so they're part of the Palestinian political spectrum, they uh, uh, would like to speak for all Palestinians. I'm not sure that they do, um, but they they would certainly they certainly contest for the leadership of the Palestinian national movement.
0: Can you talk about the status of Gaza and the West Bank? How did we end up in this situation of uh, Israeli control at some points, now Palestinian authority uh, in control of one, uh, Hamas in control of the other?
1: Sure. So. Um, Israel conquered the Gaza Strip and the West Bank in 1967, uh, when these territories were held by, uh, Jordan and, uh, in Egypt, um, uh, in the, in, so that's how Israel came to, mm-hmm. to occupy the territories in the, um, uh, sort of the beginnings of the peace agreement between Israel and the Palestinians created a Palestinian authority those so intent was to govern the West Bank and Gaza Strip, and maybe develop into a state uh, down the road. Uh, in 2016, sorry, in 2006, in the last elections that they uh, that they had, Hamas um, won those elections, uh, and uh, sort of in response, the Fatah-led uh, Palestinian Authority in the West Bank basically refused to give them power. Uh, let them rule, and then Hamas took over the Gaza Strip, expelling the rest of the Palestinian movement. Uh, and so, since then, the two parts of the uh, the area controlled or that the Palestinians would like to govern one has been ruled by Fatah in the West Bank, and the other by Hamas in the Gaza Strip.
0: Talking to Nadav Shalef from UW Madison, professor of compar- comparative politics and international relations, looking at the Uh, history behind the Hamas attack on Israel and now what looks like a a looming uh, war in Gaza. You can join in with your questions at 800-642-1234. Nadav, over this last year, uh, headlines in the U.S. I think have not been focused on what's been going on in the West Bank and Gaza. That doesn't mean things have been uh, peaceful or quiet there. Can you talk about what's been happening in 2023 before uh, this weekend's events?
1: Um, I can, although I think this weekend's event, they're not necessarily, um, mm-hmm. so they're not totally disconnected from what happened, has happened to date, but they're qualitatively right. different. And so I think, um, you know, there have, there has been, and there has been continuously, uh, violence in the West Bank, um, uh, with many, uh, Palestinians killed, um, and confrontations, Uh, between Israel and Palestinians uh, in the West Bank. Uh, But what happened here is, I think, um, sort of uh, in terms of its scale and in terms of the um, just apparently premeditated and horrific attacks on civilians, sort of takes it to a whole different league, which is why we see the kind of response that we've seen from Biden and from from others around the world and the kind of uh, anger and fear by Israel, which I think accounts for its response.
0: What and and, uh, we don't necessarily know all the motivations for Hamas, but what what do we know about why they might have done something, as you say, on this exponentially higher scale, uh, like this weekend's uh, assault uh, targeting so many civilians? Uh, Why this? Why now?
1: Um, Well, I think why this is to shock and terrorize Right? I mean, I think that's their goal um, as, a, as a whole. We don't, you know, this is still ongoing and I think we don't really know what their motivations are. Um, there are a number of things that could have played into this. Um, one is the desire to uh, gain hostages to use as bargaining chips for the release of Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails. Another is to try and torpedo the um, apparent rapprochement between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Uh, um, yet another has to do with the infighting uh, among Palestinians, between the Palestinian Authority and, uh, and Hamas, and uh, as part of their struggle for supremacy within, within uh, Palestine, to show who's, uh, who's in charge and who's the real, uh, who's the real movement standing up for, uh, for Palestinians uh and so and all of those things could have uh contributed to to doing this uh they may also not have anticipated so much um success from their perspective right i think uh, israelis were certainly surprised at the complete collapse of the uh of the um fencing and their early warning systems and the like that were uh, around the gaza strip and i i don't know but i suspect hamas may have been not expecting to uh, uh, succeed quite at the rate that they did. I
0: am going to uh, dig further into a couple of things you just said. Uh, you mentioned uh, negotiations, maybe bringing uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia into, if not an alliance, in a, into a state of cooperation and less conflict, motivated maybe in part by their fear of Iran. Is there a sense that uh, the, the Muslim world, uh, the Arab world in particular, Uh, Is less and less interested in supporting the Palestinian cause, at most, maybe paying lip service to it. And uh, that might be part of what's driving Hamas here.
1: Uh, It could be. Um, You know, I think so. I would make a distinction between the Palestinian states and their leaders, for whom what you said is is probably accurate, and for the Arab public at large, Mm. which from all the survey data that we see still cares deeply about. Uh, about uh, Palestine and what happens to Palestinians, um, but I think the other part of it is, um, yeah, so since the Arab Spring in general, the Palestinian cause has been less at the forefront of the minds of the uh, in the Arab world, um, yeah, and I think that this may be an attempt to make it relevant again, so that's one way of potentially understanding this. Talking to Nadav
0: Shalif, professor in the Department of Political Science at UW Madison. We're talking about some of the history and context of the Israel Palestine conflict, which escalated a lot this weekend after the Palestinian mil- militant group Hamas made an unprecedented attack targeting Israeli civilians. You can join in at 800 642 1234. With your questions, your responses, what we'd like, what you'd like to see in the response from the American government, join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Farad. We're picking up our talk with UW-Madison political science professor Nadav Shalif about the history behind the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and background behind the Hamas attack on Israel this weekend. You can join in at 800-642-1234. What questions do you have about what's going on right now? Join in at 800-642-1234. Let's bring on a caller. Tina is with us in Kenosha. Tina, hello.
2: Hi there. Um, I, yes, I have a couple of comments. Number one, the conflict has been going on in the Middle East forever. And I think one of the reasons that Hamas has, uh, you know, um, attacked now is because the Israeli government um, is going, kind of going toward the authoritarian bent. We saw the Israelis taking to the street, protesting that not whose uh, policies of taking away power from the Supreme Court. So Hamas, I mean, the Palestinians or Hamas are seeing this saying if they take away the democratic rights of the Israelis, what are they going to do to the Palestinians, which they have already been eroding and taking away settlements illegally, and nobody's standing up for the Palestinians. So, And I am not anti-Semitic, and I don't think standing up for the Palestinians is anti-Semitic because they also have a voice. These are people, too.
0: Tina, thanks for the call. First of all, Nadav, Tina's read that uh, Israeli domestic politics and, as she says, the disputes over uh, plans to alter Supreme Court authority there and the protests that followed that, uh, maybe Hamas, maybe Palestinians had their eye on that.
1: Uh, So, it's possible. Um, I think if that were the case, it would be sort of a, would reflect a a deep misunderstanding of Israel on the part of Hamas. Uh, Just because Israelis were Protesting and Tina's completely right. There were tremendous uh, social upheaval and forty-some odd weeks of Israelis protesting uh, uh, in the streets against the against the government. Uh, All that went out the window as soon as Israel was attacked, Uh, and that was uh, any sort of observer of Israel would think that's not a surprise. Uh, And so, um, there may have been uh, an underestimation or a perception of, of. Israeli weakness when there, when there wasn't one.
0: Thanks for the call, Tina, at 800-642-1234. Nadav, part of that response, now we're seeing uh, information about a unity government forming in Israel now, members of opposition parties joining the cabinet. Is that just uh, uh, symbolic, or is that a significant uh, change?
1: Uh, so we don't know yet. It just happened. I suspect it's more than symbolic, from my understanding, is that the um, sort of real decision making power is uh, being shifted from the uh, sort of security cabinet, which had it before, to a new uh, group consisting of the uh, opposition party that joined and um, the Likud, effectively Netanyahu and the, and the defense minister. Uh, and thereby sidelining the sort of most radical right-wing components of the Israeli government, uh, and so I think that um, I think that's the main function of that of the, the emergency government uh, that's being formed. Let's bring on another
0: caller now. Matt is with us in Middleton. Matt, hi.
2: Hello. Uh, I. I personally think that since Hamas was the elected government for the Palestinian area and they essentially declared war on Israel, I think that Israel is finally going to end this experiment with a Palestinian government, similar to the way Germany attacked their neighbors. And Germany essentially ceased to exist or existed only under an allied rule for more than 25 years. So outside of Israel essentially invading and replacing the government in that area, I don't see how it benefits Israel to do anything other than that. Otherwise, this is just going to keep happening over and over and over.
0: Matt, thanks for the call. And uh, all reports, Nadav, suggest that Israel is planning uh, some kind of uh, land and ground invasion into Gaza. Matt, speculating at this point about what, uh, Israeli goals and outcomes might be. Do you have thoughts on that?
1: Uh, well, I think Matt is uh, at least right in the sense that it reflects what the Israeli government members are saying. Uh, so it's not, you know, they haven't formally articulated the goals of the uh, military invasion that I expect is going to come. Uh, but some of them have said that they want to um, effectively eliminate Hamas from the from the Gaza Strip. Uh, and um, sort of demilitarize, I'm sure there are no weapons there, things like that. Uh, that's impossible for Israel to do without reconquering the Gaza Strip. Uh, I think that the, the question that I haven't heard uh, anybody in the Israeli government uh, speak about is what happens after that. Uh, and so I think the Gaza Strip poses a very big problem to Israel of come a couple million people that they would then have to rule uh, who don't want to be ruled by, uh, don't want to be ruled by Israel. And so I think that, um, you know, Israel faces some difficult challenges if it reconquers the Gaza Strip, about what to do next. it's not clear to me that uh, in and of itself, it might solve or might address the problem of Hamas as an organization, but it doesn't address the fundamental problem of having two nationalist movements, an Israeli movement and a Palestinian movement that both want sovereignty in a particular uh, location. And so they have to figure out how to how to deal with that. And that problem remains outstanding,
0: Matt, thanks for the call. Steve is with us now in Madison. Steve, hello.
2: hello. Um, i I would just like to ask uh, isn't wasn't the Hamas Act? Uh, Really a reflection of an act of desperation against Israeli
3: oppression and apartheid and, uh, you know,
2: invasion of Israeli settlements into Palestinian territory. I would really like and I think this is almost identical to what happened
3: with with what the United States did to the Native Americans in this country, where they. They would make treaties and then settlers would go settle in those areas. And when,
2: when the um, Indians responded or attacked, they were called savages and they were crushed. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. Steve, thanks for the call.
0: Uh, Nadav, I think Steve, uh, something on the position of uh, supporters, uh, stronger supporters of, pa- of Palestinians here in the U.S., uh, what do you think of his argument? Um,
1: so let me say, I think uh, two different things can be true at the same time. Uh, It is true that Israel continues to occupy land that the Palestinians, in which the Palestinians would like to have their, uh, their independence. Um, But I think that it can't or should not be used to justify the atrocities that uh, Hamas perpetrated on Israeli civilians. Uh, I think um, I, my, Feeling is that Hamas probably set back the Palestinian cause by doing this.
0: Thanks for the call, Steve. Now, at the outset, we uh, heard President Biden uh, saying to regional neighbors, uh, people who might uh, perceive themselves as enemies of Israel, to not take advantage of this moment. What do you watch for in terms of you know possible escalation? Hezbollah out of Lebanon, uh, believed to have uh, done some attacks, and at least in solidarity uh, with Hamas. Uh, Do you have concerns about a widening conflict, as as bad as things are already going to be from last weekend, and what's coming in Gaza?
1: Uh, It's always a worry that what starts locally can spread uh, even more widely. Uh, Israel and Hezbollah have exchanged fire uh, in northern Israel. Uh, So far, limited, but the concern is there that it spills over. Uh, and then that it becomes a much wider regional confrontation. Uh, I think worryingly, uh, it seems like Russia and the United States are aligning on opposite sides and, um, here too, not just, you know, maybe as a reflection of what's happening elsewhere in the world. And so there's a concern that, uh, this could be a match that lights a much bigger fire. And I think that's why you, one of the reasons you see the Biden administration moving so, uh, quickly. Uh, and decisively and with uh, at least the threat of uh, of military force to try and keep things in check.
0: In just our last few moments, Nadav, I mean, one wants to hope that there could be uh, after all this, some sort of peaceful settlement uh, that doesn't bring us back to steady low-level violence or extreme attacks like we saw this weekend. Do you see any road from, from here to there?
1: Uh, so the if i if i put on an optimistic hat i'd say you never know what can happen down the road right um but it's hard to imagine at the moment uh w- sort of what happens uh, a way that uh, enables israelis and palestinians to leave to live uh peacefully together at least in the uh in the medium term so uh realistically i i wish it were otherwise but i i expect it to be conflict for a while to come
0: Nadav we'll leave it there thanks again for joining us today my pleasure that's Nadav Shalif professor of comparative politics and international relations at the University of Wisconsin-Madison been taking a wide look at the Israel-Palestine conflict and the recent escalation of strikes in Israel over the weekend and now Gaza that have killed thousands of civilians on both sides Coming up tomorrow on The Morning Show with Kate Archer-Kent, Kate talks to the author of the new book, The Death of Public School, How Conservatives Won the War Over Education in America. That's tomorrow morning at 8 here on the Ideas Network. And you can follow all of these conversations and check out archive programs as well. Do that online at WPR.org or download the Wisconsin Public Radio app to your smartphone or other device. We have a winner in the annual Fat Bear Week contest at Katmai National Park in Alaska. Regular listeners know that I follow the brown bears there closely with the live webcams at explore.org. The Fat Bear competition let people vote on which bear did the best job fattening up over the summer and fall on salmon and other food to get ready for hibernation season. It's meant to get people interested in conservation and the environment. The winning bear this year is... 128, nicknamed Grazer, here's my analysis. I shared it with coworkers earlier today. Quote, I figured this was locked in a couple months back, even before the late full salmon run finally arrived. She was racking up lots of fish on the lip of Brooks Falls. You'd only see one or two jump every minute. By the time the salmon started coming in droves with enough for everybody, she had a big head start. I think voters may have also appreciated the way she stood up to some of the biggest males at various points. Congratulations to 128 Grazer and all the bears, the live webcam still running for a while now. Getting ready for hibernation. This is Central Time. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Rob Ferret. Coming up, we'll talk to a pair of Wisconsin finance experts about the challenges facing young adults when it comes to building credit, paying down debt, and ultimately saving for retirement. If you're dealing with those questions yourself right now, you can get in on it. Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Right now it's time for Wisconsin Life. Here's producer Maureen McCollum with a story about connecting with nature.
4: Quantis winter's goal is to get people outside more. As Madison Public Library's naturalist in residence, she wants people to think about and appreciate nature. Christina Leffring went to Madison's Troy
5: Gardens to bring us winter's story. So beautiful.
6: Mm -hmm. Always just take a silent moment, take a couple of deep breaths, just take it in. You can hear the insects singing their final songs, squirrels frantically preparing for winter and migratory birds preparing for their long journey. And Quantis Winters wants you to take it all in.
5: I want you to see the beauty and the enchantment of like the trees and how they sound when the wind is blowing through them, the vibrant colors of the flowers, the smell of dirt, which is like my favorite smell on the planet. I wish I could bottle it up. Like I want you guys to like have that feeling. Almost like like being
6: a child again. Like everything amazes you when you're a child. Nature has been a safe space for winters since she was a young girl. Now she's the Madison Public Library's naturalist in residence. Her first event in this role was a meet and greet and tour at Troy Farms, where she was an apprentice in 2019. She says that apprenticeship deeply transformed her relationship with farming.
5: My only uh, understanding of agriculture and black people was slavery. So I came here with the intention of dismantling that by getting my hands in the dirt and doing this
6: work outside of that context. She had started this work when she learned that her grandfather had been Gullah Geechee descendants of Africans who were enslaved and built a distinct culture in the coastal southeastern US. Knowing how to grow food
5: was something that was used to sustain their families and their communities. And so with that perspective in mind, it really helped me to see that this is a gift. There's a lot of medicine out here. And I don't just mean as in food is medicine, but I mean on a spiritual level, being able to know how to grow your own food reminds you of the smallness of yourself and the bigness of
6: nature. Winters has worn many hats over the years. She's a doula, an herbalist. She hosted a PBS Wisconsin show called Let's Grow Stuff. Plus, she's an artist and a writer. But instead of taking one hat off and putting another on, all of Winters' hats seem to overlap. There's an aspect of
5: each that requires me to nurture a certain aspect of humanity, and I think that's what links it all together. Um, When I'm creating art and when I'm writing, I'm trying to like nurture the minds of the people who are engaging in what I'm creating. When it comes to my doula work, I'm trying to nurture people's relationship with their bodies. And when I'm working with the land, I'm trying to nourish us not only physically by growing food, but also
6: nourishing that mental, emotional, spiritual aspect. Maybe that drive to nurture is one reason she's so comfortable with children. When some of the toddlers keep trying to climb on picnic benches, she scoops them up and puts them in her lap.
5: Can we sit together for
6: I don't want you to get on the table. Children are like
5: very much a part of what I do and what inspires me. Just seeing how they approach the world and how they navigate the world with that like freshness and innocence.
6: For so many of us, our connection and knowledge of our natural world has been lost. Winter's journey as a naturalist is about reclaiming that connection and also the wonder we often leave behind in childhood. Sometimes the world just kind of
5: goes gray, um, but we don't take a time to just like stop and be like, wow, what's around me is beautiful. And so I would hope to be able to offer that through like all the different things that we do together is for y'all to like walk away with that and to feel like a kid again when you're outside. Yeah. Great question. Thank you. <laughs>
4: yeah. Christina Laffering brought us that story on Quanti's Winters of Madison. Wisconsin Life is a co-production of Wisconsin Public Radio and PBS Wisconsin in partnership with Wisconsin Humanities. Additional support comes from Lola and Mary Peterson of Appleton. Find more Wisconsin Life at wisconsinlife.org and on Facebook and Instagram. I'm Maureen McCullum.
0: This is Central Time. Young adults are facing a particular set of economic circumstances that make it more difficult to achieve long-term financial security. While they work to build up their credit scores, start saving for retirement, they're also facing rising debt with student loans, high housing costs, and high borrowing costs. This age group ends up spending more of their disposable income on paying down debt, which limits their ability to build wealth, buy a home, prepare for retirement. Many of those same factors affect borrowers of all ages. So today we're getting some advice from a pair of experts in the field, and you could join in at 800-642-1234. Are we talking about you or maybe your kids if you're at that early stage or if they're at that early stage of the career? Is there a lot of debt? Is it tough to find affordable housing? And what kind of advice do you need? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Cliff Robb is the Lorna jorgensen Went Professor in Money, Relationships, and Equality and the Consumer Science Department Chair at UW-Madison. Cliff, welcome to Central Time.
3: Oh, thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
0: And Eric Cole is a certified financial planner and owner of Hilltop Financial Advisors in Milwaukee. Eric, thanks for being here.
4: I appreciate you having me as well. Thank you.
0: Cliff, how would you characterize the current you know, economic outlook for young adults who are entering the workforce or just into the workforce these days?
3: So it's it's very challenging for a lot of reasons, right? We've seen shifts in the marketplace that place greater responsibility on individual consumers in general. They're not only coming into a workplace that has seen relatively flat wage growth, but they're also in a marketplace where inflation is up, so overall cost of living is higher, and they're getting hit with a little bit higher interest rates when it comes to borrowing for those kinds of needs, like, um, again, education, housing, uh, you name it.
0: And Eric, when you work on financial planning with younger clients, assuming that younger clients come in to seek financial planning at this stage, what are are some of the main concerns you're hearing right now?
2: Um,
4: Yes. And so, yes, younger clients are certainly coming in and (laughs) have a lot of questions. Um, A lot of questions uh, tend to revolve around uh, lately you know, how do we afford this or a house? Um, and then planning for a growing family. How, how are we going to afford the cost of childcare? Or is one spouse going to stay home with the kids? How is that all going to work? Uh, there's a lot of, as a, as a young family, there's a lot of financial issues that uh, you have to deal with and navigate.
0: And Eric, I imagine those are problems for any generation. But uh, some of the things you mentioned, uh, housing costs, uh, mortgage rates, things like that, are are you seeing over time things being more difficult for that, say, young couple or young family?
4: It seems to have certainly got more difficult in the past year, to two years or so. I would say it was already very hard with uh, the housing market, very low inventories, rising, intra- rising home prices. Um, and then uh, you throw on top of that rising interest, dramatically rising interest rates. And that really uh, boosts the the cost of, of owning a home.
0: Cliff, a, a starting point here was an article uh, we saw in the New York Times about uh, younger people, Generation Z in particular, struggling a lot with debt from various sources, uh, student loan, medical debt, credit, you name it. What are you seeing, uh, Cliff, when it comes to uh, debt and young people and how it compares to previous generations?
3: It's definitely a bigger challenge because they are, again, in general, coming to, uh, they're hitting this kind of like amount of debt at an earlier age than kind of previous generations. And again, a lot of that is due to um, choices they're making early on. And a lot of times those choices are difficult choices to make. So, Even if we think about uh, taking higher education, which is very expensive and putting it to the side because not everybody chooses to pursue higher education, there's a lot of other types of debts that people face, as you mentioned. So uh, credit card debt, um, debt related to automobile purchases, uh, all those other types of things are relevant for all of this generation due to the fact that just cost of living is up across the board and it is challenging.
0: And Eric, when that client comes in and says, yeah, I want to start uh, buying a house, preparing for retirement, but here I am, I have this bundle of debt. I know everybody's different, but what do you recommend as starting points for clients to start to tackle that debt?
4: It, it The caveat is it always depends on on the person of and the situation, of course, but um, it, I try and find a way to meet the client where they're at. Um, you know where where do things stand? We get an inventory of what is going on, um, what can be done. Um, is there any extra uh, cash flow on hand, and does that need to be put to paying down credit card debt? Does it need to be put towards um, beefing up an emergency fund? Does it need to be put towards um, savings elsewhere? But when we start looking at things, you know, if you can only do um, X amount, start there, draw your line in a, in the sand and say, okay, we're going to put $10, $20 a month, if even, even if it's that amount, we're going to put that amount towards debt or emergency savings. And then as we get extra income, we can increase that amount. But Getting in the habit, starting with a habit of saving and paying down debt is where we typically first start.
0: We're talking to Milwaukee-based certified financial planner Eric Kroll and UW-Madison Consumer Science Professor Cliff Robb about how to navigate debt, credit scores, get some retirement savings going maybe with high interest rates driving up the cost of loans. Uh, Some recent reporting on the youngest generation entering the workforce, Generation Z, uh, already facing problems with debt that could make retirement planning difficult down the road. You can join in at 800-642-1234. How are current economic conditions affecting your financial situation, your decision-making? If you are that younger person just into the workforce or you have a kid who is, love to hear what you're experiencing uh, do you have questions about uh, some of the basics, what credit scores mean, for example? And uh, if you're not that younger generation, what do you wish you'd known about money and finances when you were, say, in your 20s? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at wpr.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. We'll continue our talk about financial challenges involving debt, borrowing costs, credit scores, and long-term savings, especially for the youngest generation in the workforce, uh, Generation Z. Our guests are UW-Madison Consumer, consumer Science Professor Cliff and Certified Financial Planner Eric Kroll from Hilltop Financial Advisors in Milwaukee, You can join in if you need some advice or maybe you have advice, maybe something you wish you'd known 20 years ago. Join in at 800-642-1234. Have you found ways to tackle uh, debt and maybe to start saving for retirement yourself? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Cliff, people have been talking for years about trying to boost financial literacy in the, in the high school curriculum and elsewhere. What, to you, are some of the key elements of, of what that uh, generation entering a workforce uh, needs to know when it comes to financial literacy?
3: Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of key points, but one of the foundational pieces that has kind of arisen in at least in the U.S. marketplace is that concept of the credit score. So that's at the heart of the article you were mentioning earlier. And the credit score has become an incredibly important piece of information around consumers and their financial freedom. So if you look back, you know, say, you know, 30, 40 years, the credit score kind of existed, but wasn't such a prominent feature. Whereas now a young individual coming out into the workforce, that credit score can have a huge impact on their employment. It can have an impact on their ability to borrow and it's really hard to establish those from a young age, right? So one of the things we know about credit scores is a big factor in your score is the length of your credit history. So already younger people are at a slight disadvantage. And so there's a lot of work that needs to go into learning how easy, even small decisions early on can damage that credit score, such as having a late or missed payment on a card or a utility bill. So those are really important kind of foundational pieces from my perspective.
0: Eric, is that something you work with clients on, uh, credit score management, making the kind of decisions and credit choices that will over time boost that credit score and I think give better terms in the future when we borrow stuff?
4: Well, we don't have a specific drive to uh, manage the credit score, but that does get indirectly um, managed by way of our goals are help the client, make really good financial decisions, clean up things, you know, pay down debt, boost emergency funds, things like that. All those things help to drive higher credit scores, um, by doing that. And Eric,
0: I was once in my twenties and I got to say the thought of uh, retirement seemed like distant science fiction future to me at that point. How do you talk to younger people, uh, to encourage them to think about starting to do retirement savings, uh, early, even if it doesn't seem like it's in their
4: time horizon. Sure. Yeah, that is a tough one because uh, a lot of research shows that our present selves will discount our future selves um, or not really um, prioritize our future selves as much. We prioritize our present selves a lot more. So uh, sometimes it is getting the client to think about their future self and say, okay, you are in the distant future, you're age 65 or however old you want to be when when you reach um, retirement goal. What are you thinking and feeling now that you're there? And try and get them to put themselves in that mind frame of um, being in the future. And that can hopefully help them uh, stop and think a little bit more and prioritize that savings. Um, the other piece that really helps is to uh, get on an automatic savings track so that if you're already putting in an automatic monthly amount to retirement you don't have to make that decision every month or every you know however often do i want to save for retirement yes or no you've already made that decision once you don't have to make that decision again
0: Let's bring on a caller at 800 642 1234 Fernando is with us in Beloit. Fernando, hi. Hi. What did you want to bring up?
2: Well, I noticed that a lot of people, especially young people, believe in subscribing to things like viewing sites or like packages, that kind of thing. But I find like more often than not, it's a lot of things you don't end up wanting. So I don't subscribe to anything. It just saves a bunch of money.
0: Fernando, thanks a lot for the call. And Cliff, uh, as a consumer science professor, it seems like consumer society is more and more built around subscribing to goods and services and maybe forgetting about them and paying for them uh, into eternity. How important is this as we uh, evaluate where our money is going?
3: Yeah, I think that's a really good point that's raised here. And it It nicely ties back to kind of a point that Eric was making when Eric was kind of stressing this idea of establishing good habits. And in his context, we're talking about habits that are savings related and putting money away for retirement. This is kind of again, what's happening here is marketers are very intelligently taking advantage of the known fact that if we can get you started on something in a subscription service, odds are you'll stay on board, especially if we make it kind of tricky to get off that subscription service. So yeah, there's definitely a a piece there that is worth looking at. And a lot of times what we would recommend, and what I think a planner would often recommend, is that when we're sitting down to, to work with someone, it is laying everything on the table, right? That's part of the budgeting process, is understanding where every dollar is going. And sometimes once consumers really sit down and see what are all these subscriptions? What are all these services I've been paying for? And then you can start to check the box of like, oh, I haven't used this in months, or I don't even like this anymore. And so it is definitely a critical area to analyze in consumer behavior.
0: Fernando, thanks for that call. Eric, I wanted to ask about uh, student loan payments. Now, for those with student loan debt, there's been this on and off again, uh, You know, delays in needing to repay, or is it going to be canceled? Isn't it? Well, now uh, people are having to pay. What are you suggesting people watch for as this new uh, recurring uh, payment uh, starts to come due again?
4: Yeah, there's a lot to pay attention to, um, mainly because everyone is getting on to repayment all at once, where for federal borrowers, that is, uh, where they haven't had to make payments since March of 2020. Um, one, There is a big adjustment for borrowers where now they have to account for this payment in their budgets uh, month to month. Um, And then two for the servicers, they are having to field a ton of extra forms, questions, calls, etc. You name it. They're not always doing the best of jobs also and there's mistakes made on on both ends um, from the servicers. Uh, Maybe the borrowers aren't filling uh, form out. Quite properly, um, and so borrowers should really pay attention, at least at the outset. What is the payment amount due? Um, does that match up with what I expect the payment amount to be? And if it doesn't, um, we need to take we need to take steps to remedy that situation.
0: And hey Cliff, in just our last half minute or so, what is the big open question for you when it comes to uh, the financial future of the uh, of Generation Z?
3: You know, I really want to get a better handle on how they, you know, kind of see their ability to make headway in the marketplace. That to me is what's most important, right? Do they see a future where housing is realistic? Do they see a future where the cost of raising a family doesn't just feel like too much, right? Cuz that can just be the case of like, you know, adding a child to a household does add so many expenses and the cost of childcare is up. And so I just want households to feel like they're able to make the choices that will help them be happy. And and that's always a challenge. And especially when we have markets like this, where it does feel uncertain and costs do feel higher um, than maybe they should be.
0: And that's a challenge. Thanks to both of our guests today, Cliff Robb, Professor of Money, Relationships, and Equality and the Consumer Science Department Chair at UW-Madison, and Eric Kroll, Certified Financial Planner and Owner of Hilltop Financial Advisors in Milwaukee. They're with us today to look at uh, the financial conditions challenging young adults who are trying to build up credit scores, bring down debt, and maybe start saving for retirement too. Coming up tomorrow here on Central Time, we'll get the latest on Wisconsin Supreme Court and redistricting lawsuits plus a look at volunteers in Wisconsin communities, that and more tomorrow on Central Time. Coming up after the news, an expert in civil-military relations talks about what he thinks is behind public confidence in the U.S. military and what could be influencing changes in that confidence now and in the future. I'm Rob Barrett. This is Central Time here on the Ideas Network.